0: um remember that in verse 31 jesus warned them about what would happen to him that he would be rejected killed and after three days rise again and um i think that may uh, be an important context for understanding what jesus is going to say to the crowd about being his disciple if you're a disciple of jesus you're a follower and so you would expect to go through the same steps that Jesus went through. So 34 to 38.
1: And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of his
0: of His Father with the holy angels. Really challenging statements. If anyone wishes to come after me, he presents three requirements. What are they? What's the first one? Deny. Deny what? And you know that that is kind of an odd way to say something. We would normally say that you're going to deny yourself something you know you deny yourself chocolate or you deny yourself cigarettes or you know whatever you're depriving yourself of something but he doesn't compliment this it's deny yourself yourself is the object of the denial so what's that say Yeah, maybe even more than that. <laughs> more than everything? <laughs> yeah. Can, you, can it be more than everything? Is it saying that you deny yourself chocolate and green beans and, you know, cake and... Th- no, not really. It's
2: that
1: you cease to exist.
0: Yes. It's a f- more fundamental thing than denying yourself anything or everything you're denying yourself in the sense that you're abandoning your own personhood, your own identity, your own self-determination. Christ is to live in you. You're not. It's not to be you anymore. I, mean, I think that's just really uh, wow. I think we could, you know, think a long time about that, and still really struggle with doing that. It's parallel to 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. I don't think that just means you'll save your life if you're killed for the cause of Christ. I think he's saying you give your life up. You lose your self-government. You lose your own will determining what you'll do. The idea is now the Lord determines what you'll do. But I think, again, I think that is really challenging. I think that's often not at all even what people think about doing. I think we think about some kind of a comfortable Christianity that fits with our lifestyle, makes us feel good, but denying yourself, and, and the next point is parallel to it also, I think. Take up his cross. You know, we talk about, you know, I've got this cross to bear. You know, it may be a gossipy aunt or, you know, it may be a you know, a wart on your foot or you know, whatever. I mean you know, we, we have all kinds of things. Well, that's just my cross. You know, well that's, that's totally not what Jesus is saying. What does, he, what does he mean by taking up your cross?
1: It's a method of execution.
0: Exactly! Think about what they did with a cross. It was uh, painful and final. And uh the The person who was going to be executed usually was responsible to actually carry the cross. He had to do that, um, and so so it would be like you know, take take the your cross out so that you can be hung and so that you'll be killed on it. And uh, you know, we do all kinds of things with the cross. You know, it becomes a fashion accessory. You know, it becomes all sorts of things to us. But to them, it was shame and it was it was execution. Um, and so. Jesus, I mean, if you want to follow me, well, you know, he's not saying, "Well, this is going to be exciting. This is going to be wonderful. This is going to be." He's going to, he's saying, "You know, here's a cross. Uh, this is this is what what you've got to have." So I don't know. How are we doing on uh, denying ourselves and taking up our cross? I think
1: you're right that we don't think about it that. Way. I think we think of Christianity and God is serving us. Like, we get forgiveness of sins, we get a good church family, we feel really good about ourselves, have a good life. Like, there's a whole lot of benefits that come from being a Christian, but I don't think that we often see it as, I'm giving myself to this. Yes.
0: We pay our dues, we attend some meetings, and here's what we get. You know... Becomes kind of a semi commercial transaction. And something that, yeah, it takes up some time. It takes up some effort. But it's not our life. We haven't died. You know, we've just, you know, given some things to God. In our way of looking at it. I wrote down, you know, people want a full-service church with pleasing worship, good youth program, excellent child care, nice facilities, and pastoral care when needed. You know, we're looking for something to serve us. I mean, You know, I mean, that's, whoa, totally different from what Jesus is saying. I mean, Jesus is looking for a few pioneers. He's looking for a few people who are willing to go through anything. You know, you think about it. You think about the, the what is it, the Marines looking for a few good men. And, and it, you know, and they kind of challenge you with that. They're looking for some people who are willing to put their life on the line. I mean they're looking for some people that are willing to give everything. That that aren't gonna hold back. I mean, you know, this is I mean, they're saying this is gonna be tough. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna take, you know, just incredible endurance and, and self denial. You probably die. Now who wants to sign up for that? Well, there are some people who they want that challenge. Maybe to fight for their country or maybe to prove themselves or whatever, but okay, I'll take it. And uh Jesus is looking for a few people who are willing to give everything, who are willing really to just say, I don't exist anymore, it's the Lord that lives in me. But, I mean, I, I see myself and I realize, wow, I need to grow so much more in, in those things. And, I mean, it's interesting that it's, it's sad, I mean, it's kind of shocking. This is kind of like, this is, this is the entrance requirements, the way Jesus looks at it. Um, comments and questions?
2: it's very radical like Jesus told the, the rich man to go and sell all that he had give to the poor and then come follow him we look at that and say wow he really didn't mean that we have to do that that's just too radical and this this concept is
0: very radical we always try to kind of you know water down some of these things and make it more palatable and I mean I, we've got to be careful about that, um, because I—I I mean, sometimes we sort of invent the Christianity we want, <laughs> and not the one Jesus is presenting us. Hey, look at look at Jesus' disciples. I mean, wow. <laughs> they submitted themselves to, you know, very difficult conditions, very demanding conditions. Look at the Apostle Paul you know, and Timothy, and others, you know, that, I mean, the Lord expected, you know, real devotion to him. So what
1: does this mean application-wise?
0: That everything I do is, needs to be what the Lord wants and not what I want. But, you know, I shouldn't, it shouldn't anymore be, well, you know, you know, this is, yeah, but, you know, I, I know that's what the Lord says, but you know, I, you know, I've got I've got a life to live too, you know, and and it really needs to be that that you know every decision I make and every every you know everything I do I'm I'm trying to to allow the Lord to determine what and how and when and whatever does that seem like a reasonable way of approaching that? So it's not some great thing that you do, it's all the little things that you do. Yeah, I think it's almost, it is the great thing you do. It is just, you know, letting the Lord be your master, letting him be the one that, you know, you say, okay, what would Jesus want me to do in this situation? How would he expect me to live? you know, what would be the choice that he would want me to make? You know, how can I reflect that he's the one that lives and not me? And so so in every situation it needs to be it's the Lord, you know. And so to the point where, hopefully, you know, it people can can say it's not for people, but, but I think the bottom line would be people would look at us and say, you know, They sure do remind me a lot of Jesus. I think that's kind of how we look at Paul. You know, don't we kind of see Paul Mm -hmm. as sort of Jesus in human terms. I mean, uh, because he was so dedicated. Well, I think that's that's the kind of, I mean, it's not that we're necessarily going to preach the gospel ever, you know, like he did or be a missionary or whatever, but, but that in our lives, you know, whatever we do, It would be the kind of thing Jesus would do, given that situation.
2: I guess this verse just seems so negative. You know, deny yourself and take up your cross. And there
1: has been so little negative to Christianity for me. It makes me wonder if I'm doing something wrong.
2: Yeah. Um.
1: Or not doing something right.
0: probably uh, something all of us ought to consider Um, I I, I, I want what about connecting Ah. verse 38 with that about being ashamed of Jesus and his words in this adulterous and sinful generation I mean I think probably one, one of the areas in which we tend to fail most is in being ashamed of Jesus and his words, and managing to be, you know, accepted by everybody, you know, because we kind of avoid unpopular declarations, unpopular statements, you know, unpopular, you know, um, decisions. Uh, You know, we would have it a whole lot tougher if we were a whole lot bolder. I, mean, I think that's one area. Maybe we need to. I mean, certainly the life of someone dedicated to the Lord is a wonderful life in its own way. I don't think Paul would say he had a bad life. I could say it was tremendous. He lived for the Lord, and I mean, I think he would have been he's very positive about that. It's not that. It's really not negative. It's negative when we're still trying to hang on to our life. Once we're willing to relinquish that and really say, from here on out, it's all the Lord, then that is really awesome. But it sure doesn't seem like it to a worldly-minded person. <laughs>
1: There's a couple ways you could look at this verse. One, from uh, the point of view, trying to water it down the way we do, based on what we think we know and what we do okay, well, it can't mean this and it can't mean that. What if you look at it the other way and, and this was all the information you were given initially and say, okay, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Would, would that not in itself, all by itself, mean 100% You know, doing only things for the Lord all the time? You see what I'm saying? So then where would you go to... To say, well, that doesn't mean that I have to be teaching all the time and that I don't, you know, uh, that I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to play volleyball because that's not, you know, in there anywhere. You know, is that, wh- why wouldn't we look at that verse that way?
0: Good question. Um, I think because as we look at Jesus and we look at the other teachings in the New Testament... Um, we sometimes almost separate our lives into what we think of as religious activities and non-religious activities. And what most people do is they were willing to more or less obey the Lord in their religious activities and then the Lord doesn't have anything to do with their non-religious activities. Well, I think biblically, the Lord ought to be involved in all of our activities and there would be some activities we couldn't participate in if we're a servant of the Lord. I think about Colossians three with the slaves to their master. He just kept emphasizing it's to the Lord, it's to the Lord, it's to the Lord. Can you can you serve a master as a Christian? Well, absolutely. Does it does it affect how you serve him? Yes it does. You know, Jesus went to a wedding feast. If we're following him, we may follow him to a wedding feast. But now, you know, how would you act at that wedding feast? You know, you'd act the way that, that the, the Lord would want you to. And so I don't think it's that... I don't think it's that there is... If we're going to divide between religious and non-religious activities, it's not that we totally eliminate non-religious activities. It's that we allow the Lord to govern what we do and how we do those non-religious activities. I I think we... You know, I mean, God commands us to work. I and mean, that's a command of God. We're honoring God when we work. That's not, we don't usually think of work as a religious activity. But, but if we're a Christian, for sure, for, for real, then, you know, what we do at work and everything about that, it, the Lord is in charge of that. You know, he's in control, and so, you know, I, I I watch my language, and I, you know, talk about the Lord, and I don't steal, and, you know, I don't cheat, and I don't just work when the boss is looking, and, you know, all those kind of things. You know, I'm a, I'm a serious, conscientious employee, thinking, what would honor the Lord in this situation? You know, same thing with, you know, raising your children. I mean... That's, much of the time, that's not a religious activity. <laughs> you know, hopefully we're talking of the Lord when we lie down and we rise up and we walk by the way and we sit down and so on. But, I mean, you know, when you're changing diapers and when you're feeding and, you know, when you're, you know, doing laundry and whatever, I mean, we wouldn't think of that as highly religious. Uh, but when we're fulfilling our roles the way God wants us to, with a good attitude and heart, we're doing what the Lord wants to do. And, I mean, remember Jesus was a carpenter until he turned 30. And it wasn't wrong, wasn't bad for him to be that, you know, but from what we can tell, I assume he was a sinless carpenter, you know, he never hit his hand with a nail or with a hammer and, you know, cussed. <laughs> Pretty amazing, I mean, to think about, you know, living as long as Jesus did and never once sinning. So he had plenty of challenge. You know, we don't have to be a monk in a monastery to have a lot of challenge in really living this way. Other thoughts?
2: I think it's really humbling to look at this verse. Uh, I guess any time that we're getting, uh, as my dad says, high on our horse, spiritually, uh, we look at this verse, doesn't little us. You get to thinking, am I really devoting my life totally to God? Am I really doing as this verse states? Um, and honestly, I don't think anybody can say this in this room. I know I definitely can't. Um, this is humbling to me to look at how much work I sought to do and also put my trust in God that He will help me. But and this is definitely a verse we need to read more often in thinking about where, we're, where we are in our spiritual life.
0: Good boy. I also like 36 and 37 and think about this. Uh, I mean... You know, what's the other side? I mean, Jesus is asking a lot. You know, is it worth it? Well, he asks the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, think about the other option. What, What if you decided, well, I'll just give up on the Lord. You know, I won't worry about that. And I'll go for what I can get in this life. Well, let's suppose you can get the whole world. I've not met anyone yet who has it. Uh, but what if you what if you got the whole world in exchange for your soul? What kind of a deal would that be? Still a loser. Yeah. And you know my uh, my favorite illustration of that. Most of you heard that. But what if I, you know, what if I offered you? I was a rich man and offered you ten million dollars. You know, you'd probably take that. Except I've got one condition. My condition is, you take that $10 million today, you can buy, you can build, you can travel, you can save, you can give it away, you can do whatever. But this is Tuesday, you can have it Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Friday at midnight. You give it back. Everything you bought with it back. And everything you have now back. And after Friday at midnight, for the rest of your life, you live as a beggar on the street. Would you, would you accept that proposal? <laughs> You're kind of planning on living past Friday at midnight, aren't you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, three, three days, three and a half days of, you know, $10 million would not really outweigh the rest of your life as a beggar. I don't think anybody, you know, unless you had, you know, terminal illness that you were pretty sure was going to be terminal by Friday. <laughs> you know, I don't think you'd, uh, don't think you'd accept that. I don't think anybody would. I mean, you know, we'd love the $10 million, and really, I could, probably, I could probably extend that. I could probably say, you could have it for six months, and then the rest of your life as a beggar. And I bet you wouldn't take that one either. You know? I mean, we understand, wow, you have to be cool. Six months of, you know, up to a billion, I don't care. Six months of unlimited money. That'd be really cool, but to spend the rest of your life as a beggar with nothing at all? I just it wouldn't be worth it. For one thing, you you'd be living those six months in t- such dread, you know the day's coming when you lose it all. yeah that that's stink. You know it'd almost be better to have the beggar first and then you get the the money at the end and uh, and and I don't know. it just it just wouldn't be worth it but but you think, wow, I mean, how long is our life compared to eternity? I mean, wow. and so so what do we trade? our soul in on. And it's amazing. We get the whole world. We cheat and swindle our way into a few more bucks. Or we have the pleasure of, you know, some, you know, halfway pretty girl for a night or two or a few years, you know, or or some pleasure you know, on the internet, or some acceptance by people that that we compromise our soul to get, or, you know, think about I mean, whatever it is for you that, that you're tempted to trade in your soul on. Wow, it's pathetic. I, I mean, if you, if you really thought about that, it'd help us when we were tempted. You know, I mean, just think, when you're tempted by whatever it is you're tempted by, you know, is it worth it? <laughs> Comments? Jesus always says things very well, doesn't he? (laughs) There's just nothing quite like the teaching of Jesus in the Bible. All right, anything else on Mark 8?
2: Do you think it's possible in, in verse 34 that as well as teaching what his disciples are to be, that there's indication, too, of the type of death that he's going to die when he says take up his cross. Any possibility that that he's... Because it, uh, up above, he doesn't actually say how he's going to die, but then he tells them that. I never thought about that until just now, so I didn't know if you... I, I
0: suspect so. I mean, I, I think this is patterned after his mm-hmm. death. He doesn't say what kind of death it is, but he knows what kind of death it is. And so I think I mean this is this is just following in his steps. As someone has said this this passage really is Jesus separating disciples from admirers. There's plenty of admirers of Jesus. There's not many true disciples.
2: He buys into it, you know. He buys into this. <coughs> this is the better way. Paul bought into it that it's the better way. You know. You hear things like it's more blessed to give than to receive and you think, Oh that sounds really good, <laughs> but, but it's not until you buy into it that you find out that those
0: aren't just words, it's real, it's true. Yeah, because if you're trying to hang on to the world while you're trying to serve the Lord, <laughs> it's miserable. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just divided constantly, you're, you're kind of a double-minded man and that's miserable and you I mean until you're willing to really give everything up and invest in the Lord then you never really know what it's like I think all very true and I mean you know I when I think about this I mean sometimes it's like man you know don't take everything. You know, there's things that like uh, I hope he doesn't ask for this. But I mean, stop to think about it. Just what what has any value? I mean, there's really nothing we've got that really means anything. I know it does in in a very short-range thing. When you look at the whole picture, it doesn't. I mean, some Christians have had a whole lot taken away from them. Other thoughts on it?
1: I fact, too, the way we, you, you, just what you were saying, it almost seems like <laughs> we might have a certain attitude toward giving things to the Lord. Okay. Okay. Well, I need the, my contribution. Yes. My. Okay. Well, somebody's in need. Okay. Well, I'll give that. But but we'll scrape and fight and scratch if it's not directly to the Lord to keep everything that we have. Yes. And I wonder if that attitude shouldn't be affected also because it's it's the attitude that, that is the most important thing whether it's me keeping it or keeping you from getting it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know I don't know. <coughs> you know somebody, some stranger comes along and it's you know, whatever Uses you something you owe me money. We'll, 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 I'll take you to court and bite and scratch for every dime and dollar. What is our motivation? I guess
0: it's huh? it's the, it's the <coughs> principle, not the money. <laughs> yeah, I think we have that that issue for sure. You know, it's it's. It, I think the money's a lot like you know our time. You know, we've got certain hours that they're God's. The rest of it are ours. We've got certain money that's God. The rest of it's ours. And I don't think that's true on either case. Uh, you know, I mean, I hear people all the time talking about the Lord's money. I understand they mean our collective money that we've contributed. And Okay, that's fine. But really, the money I got in my billfold is the Lord's money. Because I'm the Lord person. Everything I got is His. You know, I mean, I think we need to think of it more like that. And I don't. You know, a lot of times I I don't think of it that way. If we did, we'd really, you know, it wouldn't be so hard if we'd really crucified ourselves. If we'd really died to ourselves. Then, then I think I think the ideal is you get to where you want the same things God wants. You know, you seek what he seeks. And it's not really a sacrifice, you already sacrificed. Now it's his. Now now you now you long to be able to to share his goals and to cooperate in his mission. Other comments? Chapter 9, verses 1 to 13.
2: And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, "'This is my beloved Son. Listen to him.' And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him.
0: So, <coughs> as they come down, oh, uh, as uh, verse one. Get involved in what I was just said. In verse 1, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's a tough statement in the context. What do you think? What's he talking about?
2: Could he be saying that they won't die until they see him? Die and be resurrected.
0: Perhaps. <clears throat> that's the view
2: I've always done. I to be completely wrong
0: with that. It's possible. So,
1: here's the question.
0: <laughs> what do you mean by "you know"? Until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. I guess it's possible.
2: It could mean that. Until some see the kingdom of God come with power, they won't put themselves to death.
0: They won't taste death. That may be a stretch. Okay, but what would that refer to, seeing Uh, the kingdom of God come with
1: uh, power? I mean, I just always assumed it was the day of Pentecost and the the display of the power there.
0: Okay, that's a possibility. Seeing
1: the kingdom come, and that was...
0: They certainly saw the evidence of Jesus being king on that day. So that would fit that. Any other thoughts? But they will
1: see the kingdom after it has come with power.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: So it'll continue at that point, so after the day of Pentecost.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus was crowned prior to the day of Pentecost, presumably. Um I've been everywhere on this passage, and I'm coming to think something that probably none of you have really seriously considered. I think he probably means verses 2 through 8, and that what some of them were going to see was a demonstration of his kingdom and his power that there's something significant about the transfiguration and really showing them Jesus as king. And then he's more or less telling them, you know, this is what this is going to mean for you. You, you know, now well, it wasn't all of them, because only only took three of them. That sort of fits, at least to my mind, with what Peter himself says about the transfiguration. In 2 Peter 1.16... For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, when we we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking about the transfiguration but he sees this as the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that and I think that other possibilities exist and possibly even exist that there's more than one application of this. But just the way it's set in the context uh, I've sort of come to the, the view that he says in verse one what some of them who were standing there would see and verse 2 through 8 describe what they did see. I want to offer a comment or a refutation of that brained idea. So, some of you
2: who are standing here will live to see the transfiguration. You're going to make it a whole six days. <laughs> <laughs> that, that bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not guaranteed of tomorrow but today doesn't seem to be a huge stretch
0: yeah I guess if his emphasis is on you won't you know how long it's going to be or whatever but I think I mean you, you can say you're going to see this before you die and uh, in the context it's the next thing they see uh, I, I don't know that doesn't I realize that probably would be a problem for some people that doesn't strike me at the moment as anything other than a way of saying it but that is I think that would be an objection for a lot of people might be an objection also for it being you know six months or a year later when Jesus was crucified Mm -hmm. the resurrection Mm -hmm. or the day of Pentecost I mean so contextually it does seem to fit better yeah, that's, that's the strongest argument to me. Saint Peter's words. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I, perhaps we can see the transfiguration as a foreshadowing of his becoming king, of the day of Pentecost, of the growth of the kingdom and so forth. So there may be a tie-in between the transfiguration and later events. But it, it just seems odd to me if he's throwing this in here kind of out of context, and the next thing they do see <coughs> doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, I used to just really ridicule this view and think it was totally bizarre. Uh, but, I don't know. Uh, sometimes you, you change views for the worse, so the fact that I changed doesn't necessarily mean it's right. But but the context is, uh, is just made me think that's what it is, so it really doesn't make a lot of difference as far as just studying is concerned, if if it does mean you know, one of the other views of the resurrection the dead Pentecost, or even maybe the idea of, you know, the growth of the kingdom, or the, what I took prior to this, was it referred to the destruction of Jerusalem but that was a demonstration of his powerful kingdom but I've come to think that we see the destruction of Jerusalem way too often in the New Testament, so so. <laughs> so, we
1: took out a couple of references. <laughs> this
0: so, was one of them. so, what? Uh,
1: so, you just, you know, took out a couple references. And this was one of them.
0: This is what happened. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: The, the, the yeah. I took out all the ones there that don't seem many. to have anything to
0: do with the church ju- of ju- ju- Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Going along with what John was saying, do you t- does it imply that some who are standing here will not taste the death, does that not imply that some will have died? In which case, if it's six days later, that seems is that? I mean, I sort of get that implication that maybe some will die.
0: Maybe. I mean, I, I think you could press it to that point. I don't know that that would necessarily be the implication. It's kind of a problem with the resurrection of the day of Pentecost unless all we're talking about is Judas.
2: But wait, some
1: of them didn't see the kingdom of God coming with God, Exactly.
2: If it was a transfiguration. Regardless of whether or not they died. They, this but
0: would fit There's the some sun. here who will not take his death Before. Before. Until, they
2: until they see it. I don't know, maybe. Before. I don't know
1: either. Uh, I always thought that implied some had died.
0: And so, what did you think it referred to?
2: Pentecost.
0: And just Judas died? Uh,
2: perhaps well. he was.
1: I guess I hadn't thought a whole lot about who all he was talking or to. Or maybe they like, talking to the multiple
0: yeah. I was thinking he was
1: talking to more right. people than his disciples so chances are in six months to a year
2: whenever he died.
0: So he may have died in six days.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, assuming the opposite is not necessarily doesn't necessarily
1: make sense. I, I, that's just how I read it but I may be wrong because I've never considered the others. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think it's possible I'm not going to necessarily stick to this, but I think it's possible you could connect the taste death with his statements before, about uh, losing your own life, uh, taking up your cross.
1: Hmm.
2: Maybe they, maybe some weren't convinced of their need to do that until they witnessed.
0: That would be an interesting idea. I never thought about that. I
2: have not thought. <laughs> oh, there <we> go. <laughs> Okay, so am I wrong to think like they're all going to see the Kingdom of God after it has come with power when they die? Is that go. true?
0: Uh, <laughs> I don't know.
2: That needs to be true for your thought? <laughs> yeah, because then that would make it make sense. Like some of you will see this before you die. Like everybody who
0: was following him when they died, then they would see giants Well, I don't
1: know what you want to call it, but...
0: Like... <laughs> 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 Does that make sense at all? I do follow what you're saying. Is that valid? I don't know. Gary's <laughs> yeah. so funny. We could say it was, because that was my idea, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably not. You're with Nathan. <laughs> at least you're humble. Should sure, should sure <laughs> kind of, uh... Then you paused there. <laughs> It, it, you know, it is. I, I mean, I think it's a very difficult verse. I mean, I think it's just like, kind of pops in there. And, you know, I mean, I I grew up always hearing it referred to Pentecost, and, you know, you you receive power, and the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and we connect all that and so forth. But, and maybe that's what he's talking about, but I don't know. It's just like, okay, so why does he just kind of say that like that? I don't know.
2: If it is a transfiguration, though, then that means that the kingdom of God has come? Or maybe, as you were saying before, maybe it's a a symbol of that, or it's a a view to that?
0: Yeah. I think there. you know, the whole idea of the kingdom of God here, Jesus is there. He's the king. Right. So I think there's a sense in which yes. Well, his kingdom exists. Yes. Regardless. Yes. So I think there's a sense in which yes. Clearly, there is a sense in which Jesus rose back to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and, and was crowned, and there's a sense in which his phase of the kingdom began then. But but I think the Bible sometimes speaks of Jesus being king as, as that's sort of the presence of the kingdom with us. I think sometimes we're too, you know, I don't know. I mean... We try to s- specify that too definitively, and I think it may depend on the context in which you're talking about. At any rate, what happens in 2 through 8 is pretty incredible. I mean, what do they see? A
1: glowing Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah. A uh, glowing Jesus. And to me, Jesus always had this glory. You just couldn't see it. Because his, like his skin, you know, was, didn't allow it to shine through. But, but suddenly it's like God makes his skin transparent to where that, that true brightness and glory of Jesus shines through. And they can really see the glory of Jesus and who he really was, which is amazing and exciting, that would be something to see. Clearly, Peter, by his reference in 2 Peter 1, viewed this as very significant in his life. I mean, it's the thing that, that really confirmed his faith. He said, we didn't follow fairy tales. We saw it. We saw his glory. You know, when we told you about his coming in power, we had, we had every right to say that. It was not based on any kind of a myth. It was based on our actual seeing and hearing this. And so, I mean, this was the event he turned back to as the definitive proof but this was no fairy tale. He saw it. And so that was really impressive. And then Elijah and Moses are there talking to Jesus. And uh, I don't know. I mean, what would what would you have thought if you were Peter, James, and John? And you saw Moses and Elijah there. What would Moses mean to a Peter, James, or John? My first thought would be, who are you? <laughs> yeah. Well, they were wearing
1: name tags. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Hi, my name is
0: Moses.
2: Uh, I wanted to how do I know who was?
0: Name tags. It's always been my answer. I don't know if they were or not, but it sounds good to me. They've
2: been tagged. They had, uh, they had their trading cards, that's how
0: they <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd know that face anywhere. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, uh, some people would say maybe they picked it up in the conversation, um, but, but, but they knew it was Moses. However it was, they knew it was Moses. Now, what would being in Moses' presence have meant to Peter, James, and John? Kind of like, Ar- kind of like George Washington. Maybe. Why would you say that? Because it's like the guy that led them out of Egypt. Yeah, he's their great liberator. He's the one that God used to free them from bondage, and what else? the law. absolutely he is the Moses of the law of Moses <laughs> and uh, those great things that I thought and all the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and everything and what else it's
2: kind of weird that he I guess for me he had been, been in the presence of God
0: yes yes when he glowed
2: kind of like Jesus had you.
0: Yes. And what else? I think the presence of
1: Moses validated
0: Jesus' claims. In some ways, it did. Moses sure did point to Jesus in Deuteronomy 18. It's significant that he's right here with Jesus. Think about Moses as the one who led them through the wilderness for 40 years, right up to the brink of the promised land. You know, I mean, to be in the presence of Moses, wow and Elijah what would Elijah have meant to Peter, James or John he
1: never
0: died yes remember how he went up to heaven and, and the, the chariot with the flaming horses and all that? that wow that is awesome
2: Mount Carmel
0: yes that great contest with Baal on Mount Carmel that is tremendous God brought fire down to consume the, the sacrifice and everything around it the the meeting with God when God speaks to the fire. Yes, yes they're on Mount Horeb of course, and just his courage to stand for the Lord in a wicked generation against Ahab and Jezebel, almost a lone voice, I mean man Elijah was just, he's kind of the Daniel Boone, he's the rugged wilderness man who courageously spoke out for truth and righteousness in a dark time and uh you know, you can imagine Peter, you know, why well, he'd have given, you know, and any Jew would have given their right arm to be for a few minutes in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And and what does Peter have the uh, <laughs> presence of mind to say? <laughs> Ready to start building. Building what?
1: Tabernacles.
0: How many? Three. Three? Three? There's Moses and Elijah, that's two. Why does he want to build three? That's right. Oh, he's going to give Jesus one too. Isn't that nice of him? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, apparently it didn't occur to him not to say anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 and uh,
0: the voice comes out of the cloud. And the voice says, sort of, No, Peter, not three. Not even two. Just one. And what it said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah vanished. Only Jesus remained. This was a way of just showing you don't put Jesus on a par with Moses and Elijah. Nor do you put Jesus on a par with anything else. I think our problem is we build too many tabernacles. One for Jesus. And one for our church. One for Jesus and one for the Pope. One for Jesus and one for our family. One for our favorite recreation. Or whatever, you can go on and on with that. But but we built too many. And God is saying, he is my son. Listen to him. It's almost ironic that in this passage dealing so much with things that are seen, the voice says, hear him. <laughs> <coughs> Comments and questions through verse 8.
2: What was it that was blowing on Jesus?
0: Um, well, his garments were white and apparently his his being was glowing
1: I
2: don't know his face was it says in Matthew yeah because that it me because that I mean to me that kind of when his garments are glowing kind of symbolizes his purity I don't know just to me but is there any
0: oh, yeah is his purity his, his glory his majesty oh, yeah. all of that yeah, yeah. I don't know if I was off the loop the appearance of his face became different in uh, Luke his clothing became white and gleaming.
2: As no launderer on
0: earth can whiten them. Yeah. That. <laughs> <I just laughs> <love that. laughs> they don't make make bleach good enough for this.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I wonder what these uh, new disciples or apostles or whatever they would call them at the time fought to hear from God the Father.
0: Yes! That's a little
1: shocking. Because that's not obviously not very common in the New Testament. (laughs) Yeah. And for them, I was thinking back, I mean, it would have been at Jesus' baptism. I don't know who actually heard that. But other than that, there's not a lot of direct communication from the Father with anyone.
0: Yeah, you're right.
1: So, you know, of all the things that Jesus did that you would think would have really opened their eyes to see what was really going on, to actually hear from the Father who he claimed to be from, seems like that would have <laughs> been the, the the last thing that they needed to, to to comprehend it, I guess. But obviously they still don't, but that almost seems bigger than any of the miracles, anything else. You know, okay, yeah, you did these things, but what does all this mean? Well, I'm the son of God, I'm and then to hear maybe they did I'm assuming they knew the voice was from God. I don't know. I mean, is there
2: any indication I guess? Well, Mom just tells her not to say anything about it.
0: Well, and saying this is my beloved son. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Who would they think it was? <laughs> I don't think they thought it was Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I assume they didn't. Certainly Peter did later in 2 Peter 1. Yeah. But I assume he understood. Uh, the whole event. Wow.
1: It almost doesn't give it
0: enough
1: Yeah, uh, enough, enough coverage, yeah, column we, space or whatever.
0: Yeah, 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 this is the one we shouldn't blink while we're reading this. It's uh, powerful and, and amazing, and you know, you might think about Moses being representative of the law, Elijah, the prophets, Jesus is superior to the law and the prophets. And Jesus told them not to tell until he'd risen from the dead, and they want to know what rising from the dead would You know, slow. No wonder Jesus doesn't want to talk about it yet. Wonder what they'd say. What kind of garbled message would they put out about this? Jesus shows extreme patience and self-restraint when he deals with the disciples, which gives us all hope uh, and then they say you know uh, what if the scribe saying Elijah has to come first I'm sort of assuming that having seen Elijah that triggered that I don't know and what did Jesus basically say here yeah, he did yes he did and uh, you know they didn't understand, you know, who Elijah was. He's talking about John the Baptist. John was the Elijah that was going to come. And and he did. Now I want you to notice though a couple things about 12 and 13. You know, he said, yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Even Elijah, they did to him whatever they wished. You see in both Jesus and John that they're going to suffer be treated with contempt, be, be mistreated. And that's the pattern that you see all through this. The glory comes after the suffering. You know, uh, some people today want to skip suffering 101 and move on to advanced placement in glory 909. <clears throat> you know, the suffering comes first, whether it's Jesus, whether it's John, or whether or not it's a disciple that takes up his cross. And so Jesus is really showing that, I think. All right, comments or questions through verse 13. You
1: know, in the the disciples' defense here, Jesus wasn't real clear with that answer. I don't think. (laughs) You know, we talk about how, well, they didn't get it. Well, he didn't exactly identify John the Baptist here. Yes. In In this answer.
0: Yes, though, did he in, uh, well, actually, yeah, verse uh, Matthew 17:13. then the disciples understood that he'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. So they yeah. seem to have gotten that point, point. and I wonder if he didn't, as he did on a couple of occasions, and maybe this is just abridged, maybe Jesus actually said enough. To, you know, you live to know. They do seem to understand that, but you know, I think more fundamentally, they don't. Don't you know the whole idea of Jesus dying? They never got that. I don't think they wanted to get that. but
1: what does it mean that Elijah comes and restores
0: all? Well, I suspect it's a reference back to Malachi 4.6. Now what this means might be a good question uh, as well. But talking about Elijah the prophet, he says he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I mean, I think the general idea of Malachi 4.6 is that John was going to come and bring about a spiritual revival and renewal turning people back to God um, but I'm still not sure that I understand exactly what that that's those details of that are, are saying so that's probably the best I can do with that other comments and questions?
1: You know, what exactly is the connection with his second statement there? He says, yeah, Elijah does come restore a thing. And yet, how how is it written? Is it, he goes on to talk about the of man What does that have to do with Elijah? What does that have to do with their question?
0: Well, maybe it has to do with the constant misconception they have. You know... Elijah is going to restore all things, but don't think by that, that that doesn't mean I don't have to suffer. You know, even though Elijah restores all things, it is written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And even Elijah, they did to him whatever they wished. So his restoring all things doesn't mean there won't be suffering. That's the way I take it. Is he talking about John the Baptist's
1: call for repentance? I think so. Is that what it means? Yeah. I think he's
0: restoring people back to God, basically.
1: And a lot of people responded to him.
0: They did, yes. He, I mean, he's a great revival, you know, spiritually. And it was from John's followers to a great extent that Jesus' disciples were taken and so forth.
2: Could his comment about his suffering come from verse 10 when they're wondering about rising from the dead? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe so. Other comments?
1: Is he kind of saying, you know, you understand that the Elijah is John the Baptist, why don't you understand that I have to
0: suffer? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think so. And look at what happened to John. You know, I mean, so yes.
2: But if they're still thinking of physical restoration, then how does that all fit? And we know they are.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they don't have a good concept of what the kingdom really involves. As many people today. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. You know, we we can talk all about, you know, they were looking for this physical kingdom and how, you know, blind they were. (laughs) But, (laughs) after all we've been taught, so many people today, that what they're really looking for is blessings in this life. That, that's really, I mean, you just see, I, I think, I mean, I think a lot of Christians, they're a whole lot more interested in this life stuff. And, 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 you know, I mean, sometimes you hear Christian, well, if you serve God, you know, you'll get this and this and this and this and this. And this. All this life focused. So I I think that's a natural tendency to want to see what God's offering us as blessings here and now. Primarily. Other comments?
2: But it seems like too often when we and I think you're exactly right with that. You're talking to me here. Um, But too often when we think of spiritual blessings that's not the here and now that's only going to be in heaven i mean it seems like it's predominantly the other direction where i think we need to see the spiritual blessings that we have in christ right now not that they're complete or perfect or what they're going to be but to pretend that well we got to wait till we die and get to heaven before we see these spiritual blessings i think we miss it yes completely.
0: because i think the bible teaches that basically we have the down payment yeah right now yeah you know, we don't have the full, you know, thing, but we've got, we've got the, a sample, you know, that we can enjoy and should, and it ought to just whet our appetite for the full measure. Uh, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think when we're focused on more material, physical, this life sort of things, you know, we just show how shallow and non-spiritual we are. What, even in this life, what we ought to long for are the blessings of our fellowship with God and the spiritual things that that gives us. You know, and, and you know, you expect a small child to have misplaced values. You know, I mean, he'd value, you know, a little teddy bear over, you know, $100,000. But, but, you don't. Know, you expect for us to have more clear concepts of what matters and what matters is the Lord whether it's this life or the life to come other comments alright we probably just ought to stop here since the next section will involve a lengthy uh, discussion and reading uh, but we can pick up in 914 and I think 1 2 I think two more Tuesdays and then start on Thursday.
2: Carol wanted to know if the week you start on
0: Thursday, if you come on Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> 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 I agree. No, i get a bowling green on Tuesday that <laughs> <laughs> week. I mean.
2: Carol was switching.